I first met Her Majesty the night before the funeral of my employer, the Duke of Olympia. It was then February of 1906, and she had been dead for five years, but I recognized her instantly. Her eyes, you see. Who could mistake those bulbous blue eyes? She sat at ease in my favorite armchair when I emerged from the bath. She wore no crown or tiara, nor any distinguishing mark of her rank. Her hair was dark and glossy, parted exactly down the middle, and beneath her dress of sensible blue wool she was no longer stout, but small and plump as a new hen. As I stood there in the doorway, arrested by shock, still wet and soap-scented from a quarter-hour's scrubbing in a narrow enamel tub, she turned her round face toward me and said, "'It is really not wise to wash one's hair in the wintertime.' We expected a little more sense from you. I thought the occasion warranted the effort, I said. Not at the expense of one's health. One's health is paramount. I continued to the dressing table, where I took my seat on the cushioned stool and selected a comb. The solid weight of this ancient and wide-toothed ivory object, which had once belonged to my own mother, steadied my nerves. I wore a high-necked nightgown of white flannel and a lined brocade dressing gown belted snugly over that, but Her Majesty was the sort of person who made one feel as if there weren't enough clothes in the world. One does not sit in the presence of royalty unless invited, said the Queen. With all respect, madam, you do not exist. You have also turned your back. One never turns one's back on one's sovereign. King Edward is my sovereign. In any case, you will observe that, in the mirror, we meet face to face. She considered me for some time, while I combed my damp hair into long and careful sheets. As a horse, I might have been described as a liver chestnut, whose coats occupied a muddy middle ground between yellow and brown, neither brilliantly fair nor alluringly dark, remarkable only for its plainness. My employer had at one time expressed approval of this uninspired shade in such a way that implied I'd had some choice in the matter. A valuable thing to go about unnoticed, he told me gravely, an advantage not to be wasted. You have your mother's hair, said the Queen. Not quite. Hers was more fair. And how would you know this? You hardly knew the girl. I have her portrait. The artist flattered her. Aren't you going to offer us a drink? What use would that be? It would demonstrate a certain courtesy, for one thing, a quality in which you appear to be badly lacking. One supposes it is your mother's influence. Your father was always a dutiful man. Her fingers were full of rings, and she twisted them about on her lap, one by one, like an engineer twisting knobs on a machine, hoping one of them would do the trick. A look of triumph appeared on her face. If I don't exist, then why should I appear in your mirror? I expect it is all part of the illusion. I set down the comb and swiveled the stool about to face her. My room was elegant and comfortably furnished, but not large, exactly suited to my rank, I suppose, and Her Majesty sat only a yard or two away, while the coals spat on her dress. Have you got something important to tell me? I really must go to bed. Scandalized. But your hair is still wet. You'll catch a chill. 
You are occupying the chair next to the fire, madam, where it is my usual custom to dry my hair. She harumphed, but didn't move. Is this about the ceremony tomorrow? I asked. Have you any special instructions? I understand the two of you were close at one time. He was one of my most trusted advisers. I often hoped he would agree to lead the government, but he always refused. He hated politics, I said, the parliamentary kind at least. He was resigned to democracy, but he hardly relished it. And now the grand old Duke of Olympia is dead. She shook her head. And who is there to replace him in all my empire? These new young fellows are all beardless fools, every last one. Soft, nothing to the men of my day.'